Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Welcome to Skylight Books. Welcome to Skylight Books. Thanks for coming out. Put your hands together. You guys made it out. Thank you. Tonight we are celebrating Michelle T. and her latest book, Against Memoir. We just take that off. Anyway, you guys, it's going to be a great evening because Michelle is in conversation with Maggie Nelson. And so they're both going to be up here. Yes, it's exciting. Uh, first, Michelle's going to read a little bit from the new novel, and then they'll be in conversation, and then they'll open it up to you guys if you have any questions. And after that, uh, we'll, we'll take your chairs away. We'll end the evening, take your chairs away, and set up a, t a signing table here. So we want you to buy the book in the front and come on back and get it signed. We'll set up a little queue along the bookshelf. I'll be here. We'll be together. It's all good. Um, I wanted to remind you guys to follow us uh, um, on Twitter at Skylight Books. If you could do that, we'd appreciate it. And then put your cell phone away. We'd appreciate that too. And I wanted you guys to know that we have many of Maggie's books here. Excuse me. We have many of Michelle's books here tonight. We have Modern Tarot. That was the first one I read. Yeah. We also have Without a Net, Without a Net, The Red Parts, Black Wave, Girl at the Bottom of the Sea, Valencia, How to Grow Up. We've got all these books here, so we're super excited to see her again here at Skylight Books. Michelle's been here many times. We're always happy to have her. All right, you ready to come on? All right, you guys, put your hands together for the amazing Michelle T. Oh my goodness, thank you everybody for um, coming. If I mean, you can kind of sit on the floor up here if you don't mind getting your butt dirty. Um, all right, I'm not gonna take care of everybody. Um, so um, this book is a, it's a collection, an essay collection. I basically um, was hoping it would be an easy way to get a, an easy lazy way to get a book out by just giving my publisher things that I'd already written and then I could have a book and go on a book tour. Um, but they made me write new things for it, which is cool because um, they're the parts that I actually, the pieces that I like the best. So I'll, I'm going to read um, this piece called Hags in Your Face. It's actually quite long and I'm just going to be able to read a little bit of the beginning and uh, I don't think I need to say anything except that. Throughout the majorities of the 1990s, my evenings were split between working at a nonprofit call center where I bummed money off strangers for good causes and getting drunk and dancing at any of San Francisco's queer punk clubs. I didn't know I didn't know the town was a hotbed of these two particular and generally separate subcultures, queer and punk, and I didn't know how badly I needed this particular hybrid in order to discover myself in my entirety. But when I walked into a club called Junk, formerly a gay club called Paula's Clubhouse, it was like I had walked into my own best case scenario of life. Up in the DJ booth, a scrawny punk with a bright blue mohawk spun Nina Hagen. Soon enough, she would be my girlfriend, but that night I made out with a different girl entirely when the centrifugal force of a broken mosh circle sent us flying into one another. 
I never saw her again, but no worry. The Mission District in the 90s was a promenade of fierce young dykes, each more shorn, more intriguingly pierced, more gender ambiguous than the last. Reigning over all, at least to my star starstruck eyes, were a motley crew of surly 20-somethings resembling Peter Pan's Lost Boys, if the Lost Boys were girls, the sort of girls who look like the sort of boys who might break a beer bottle over your head at a club. Youthful and sweet-cheeked, their tender faces topped with hair matted into dreadlocks with spray adhesive, or glued into a mohawked plank, or dyed black as coal and worn to the waist, not in the way of a maiden, but in the way of, like, Lemmy from Motorhead. I'm talking about the hags, and if you were alive in the mission during this era, you saw their tags everywhere. Is this little tinging noise making some people crazy? Something no? Okay, good. Just checking. It is making some people crazy. Sorry. There's not enough of you for me to do anything about it. Is that it? Okay, cool. Thank you. Okay. Um, I'm talking about the hags, and if you were alive in the mission during this era, you saw their tags everywhere, at bus stops and in bar bathrooms, on phone booths and brick walls. Hags SF, hags in your face, in a black Sharpie scrawl. You knew a hag was a hag because they moved in a pack, as all wild animals do. And the backs of their motorcycle jackets and denim vests all proclaim their affiliation, hags. More than the presence of a women-only bathhouse soaking with lesbians, more than the women's bookstore selling Dorothy Allison novels and feminist newsletters, even more than the bearded lady at the Dyke Cafe that hosted late night art events attended by Kathy Ackerman. The hags were evidence of the mad freedom to be found in San Francisco. Yes, the city was still plagued by fag bashings and other anti-queer hate crimes, but if this was the place this group of magnificent and terrifying dykes thought best to call home, it was where I wanted to call home too. The hags were formed by Tracy Thomas, a queer Colorado punk who followed her band, Feminine Deodorant Spray, to the Bay Area at the start of the decade. A photo from the era shows Thomas posing before what looks like a fuzzy zebra-striped wall. Her mohawk is as stiff as plastic, her denim vest covered in studs. She wears a bullet belt and a Misfits t-shirt and a handkerchief knotted around her neck. There's a tattoo on her forearm, and her head is slightly tilted as she looks warily into the camera. She seems to be trying to radiate classic outlaw toughness while simultaneously wondering if the photographer is going to kick her ass. Sometime after this photograph was taken, Thomas was grieving a breakup by flinging plates out of the window of a friend's fourth floor apartment down by Fisherman's Wharf. She was not alone. I had a couple of friends who were like, let's hang out and support each other, and it was a kind of tough get your energy out, girl support togetherness thing. The influence to codify the energy struck Thomas. Influenced by filmmaker and misfit icon John Waters, Cookie Miller and the Girl Gangs, Divine strutting around beating people up and rolling people. She dubbed her posse the Hags, after the auteur's obscure black and white film, hag in a black leather jacket. The hag's primary activity, and this remained constant throughout their existence, was roaming in a protective pack around San Francisco, getting drunk, going to punk shows, and committing the light vandalism known as tagging, leaving your gang's name or your own inked somewhere it shouldn't be. We'd spray-painted tags all over the city, Thomas recalls. I remember we spray-painted this van, and it turns out it was the Breeders, and they wrote the song Hag about it. <laughs> Indeed, the lyrics begin, hag, coastal cutthroat, and a bit further down, Kim Deal speaks, sings, you're just like a woman, hag. In this lost country of the 1990s, where such a dirty switch is everything right, hags seemed to rule by an almost cosmic decree. We would climb over fences at night and hop into public swimming pools. I'm like, where was there a public swimming pool in San Francisco? They knew so much more than most people, and drank beer and be this girl unit. Like the alluringly bad boys of my youth, only girls. Like the outsiders come to life, the teenage girl who wrote them into existence, now showing all the way through. 
Just being a lesbian in this world, you're going to have somebody messing with you, or even just being a woman. There was a lot of fag bashing going on in San Francisco, so we would take to the streets and walk, and it was like we were an entity, like, you're not going to do this type of thing to us. When the hags began, it was five dykes. One of them was Johanna Lee, with her short, shorn red hair and nerd glasses. She rode her motorcycle up to Alaska and made scathingly perverse comics, lampooning both the dyke culture that was her home and the Christian values of the abusive family she had left behind. Like everyone in the hags, she was young in her 20s. It was Johanna who tagged in a hags member by painting the back of everyone's denim and leather jackets. Each time someone got tagged in, Johanna would take acrylic paint and draw that person on the back of our jackets. The jackets had hags on the back, and then there were little stick figures. It makes me think of those like horrible like decals on the back of fucking suburban vans where it's like the dad and the mom and the kids. So it's like that, only like crazy dykes. <laughs> Another original hag was Stacy Quijas. Originally from Colorado, she too was running from an abusive family. She quit school after eighth grade and had been on her own since age 14. Quijas wore her hair long under a backward baseball hat or up in a massive mohawk. From her nose dangled a ring like a baby bull. Her legs were famous. On the back of each calf sat one half of the L7 logo, each a skeletal green hand making an L or a 7. There is no overplaying the importance music had for the hags. In particular, girl bands who shredded and killed and murdered as hard as dudes. Bands like the Luna Chicks and Seven Year Bitch tried and Malibu Barbie. The all-female grunge metal punk L7 was Quijas' favorite, and a photo of her tribute tattoo graced the cover of the Pretend That We're Dead single. It's also how Quijas met Kelly Kegger. Green mohawk, leather jacket, combat boots, spikes, piercings, rings, covered in tattoos, tiny, loud, in your face, laughing, crying, yelling, stoic, tough, pretty, kind, selfless, selfish, self-conscious, insecure, obsessed, girl crazy, loyal, chaotic, serene, supportive, judgmental, rude, accepting, but most of all, wild, as in untamed, dangerous, mind-blowing. That's Toby Vale, founding member of Bikini Kill, the person who literally put the girl in Riot Girl. She spent a season on the road with Quijas, who acted as the band's roadie during a tour in 1992. They had all met a bit earlier through the networks that bring bands cross-country and into Congress with other bands, crashing on floors, giving lifts to transient fans. The tour stopped at Jabberjaw, a coffee shop come music venue that hosted all-ages shows for the likes of Nirvana and Elliot Smith. In attendance was a 19-year-old metalhead from Torrance named Kelly. Now a man, back then Kelly was a dyke, into metal, sporting super long dyed black hair. Recently out of high school with no plan for college, not much going on, a loner, she'd come to the Bikini Kill show out of desperation for some sort of counterculture that got close to her queer punk self. Oh, your legs are on the record, she said to the band's roadie. We were standing out front, and me and her, me and her started talking about music. I had a little Honda Civic. We went out to my car, and I had all these cassette tapes. We were listening to songs, metal songs, like this old demo from Metallica and Corrosion of, con- Corrosion of Conformity. We were listening to this band Born Against in Rorschach, and she was like, oh, yeah, I like this music. I'm not into Bikini Kill. I'm just touring with them. She said that I'd like San Francisco. A few months later, Kelly picked up her Honda Civic and set off for San Francisco with $3,000 she'd gotten in a car accident settlement. That was like a million dollars back then, she says. She arrived in town without knowing a single person, located a place to live by word of mouth, and found her way into the mission, mission's growing queer subculture by showing up at the Bearded Lady and Junk. I remember walking in there and everyone was into SM. Everyone was like bald and just like leather. And people were having sex out in the open, like everything was a sex party. I was like, whoa, this is a total Judas Priest song. This is wild. 
Appreciative of the spectacle, the young queer did not swing in that particular direction and was often clueless when being hit on by racy lesbians. They were like, what are you into? And I was like, well, I like Italian race bikes. Music, I'm really into metal. And they were like, but really, what are you into? And I like Pepsi and espresso. I get an espresso over ice and then you pour a Pepsi in it. And they were like, whatever, this guy is useless. <laughs> the night wasn't a total bust. Quijas was also at the club that night and the two reunited. Later, she took Kelly to meet the hags at a house party following a lunatic show. They had hags written on their jackets, Kelly recalls. It was just all these crazy fucking dykes that weren't into kumbaya music, you know what I mean? For Kelly, it was a revelation. I tried to begin Los Angeles, and it just wasn't working out. It was like Farrah Fawcett dykes hanging out at the Palms. The South Bay punk scene, knowing laughter. <laughs> it was like Farrah Fawcett dykes hanging out. Oh, I just read that part. The South Bay punk scene was black flags, circle jerks, just dudes. But then when I met the hags, they were into music and going to shows. We didn't just go to queer shows. We went to straight shows, too. None of us were mousy at all. If some dude was going to fuck with us, we'd fight right back with them. It wasn't only the macho landscape of punk rock that held potential bra brawls. brawls. Anti-queer violence could pop up on a munibus, as it did when a man spit in fellow ha a fellow hag's face and called them both crazy dykes. They knocked him onto the floor of the bus and kicked him until the driver threw them off, threw him off. Then high on adrenaline, they lit up cigarettes and got kicked off again for smoking. <laughs> it's hard to think about being proud of that, being this person who fucks shit up all the time. But that's a thought conjured from the comfort of two 2016. Although San Francisco had been a safe haven for queers since World War I, when the military began dumping their blue discharges, gay soldiers, at its port, inadvertently creating a gay community, there have always been violent bigots in the city, as seen from the recent murder of the popular transgender DJ Bubbles, who was gunned down near the record store she worked at in the Tenderloin, or the fatal bashing of radical fairy Feather Lynn in Placid DuBose Park in 2014. Queer people are never safe, and in the 1990s that knowledge was acute. I recall driving by Estenoche, the city's first Latinx gay bar, and seeing a patron getting walloped with a two-by-four on the street outside. I spent the night leaving hysterical messages on the answering machines of various nonprofits. It hadn't occurred to me to call the police. Police weren't friends of queers. Like the hags and most other queer females, I lived in the mission, not yet a neighborhood of innovating restaurants and boutiques selling $1,000 retro sound systems. The mission in the 90s was the neighborhood that folks from the rest of the city were too scared to come to. Much of that was simple racism. The mission is the city's Latinx neighborhood. But it was really the city's impoverished Latinx neighborhood, and the tension of white queers, the first wave of gentrification, added to the friction of a place already contending with gang activity, a brisk street market of drugs, and sex for sale nightly. Packs of inebriated and aimless young men raised in an American culture of homophobia roamed this gay city. My best friend was assaulted when a man ran out from the Valencia Gardens housing projects and clobbered him on the head. A gang of bicycle thieves jumped out at me as I rode home from work on Mission Street one night, almost knocking me off my seat as they seized my rear tire and proclaimed my bike to be theirs. I fought them off with wit and outrage, tools I also used to scare off the single men and packs of boys who harassed me as I made my way home, though I was on occasion inspired to use my purse as a weapon when the advances were especially relentless. Once when my girlfriend and I were held up at gunpoint at a bus shelter on the corner of 16th and Mission, I dissuaded our attacker with tales of our poverty and an offer of beer from the six-pack I was carrying. This was the landscape the hags gathered in. Though they were not consciously gathering for self-protection, they understood, as we all did, that us broke female queers may be called upon to protect ourselves at any minute, and the safety of numbers was always more effective than a pocketbook. Silas Howard directs for film and television now, but in the 90s he ran the Bearded Lady Cafe, and as the bass player for Tribe 8 was the focus of much hag adoration. The city was much more violent, he remembers. I got a gun pulled on me several times. Harry, the Bearded Lady's co-owner, got gay bashed at a taqueria on 24th Street. There were way more neo-Nazis going into the punk scene. All of that tension was on the surface. We were at war. It felt like that. 
At war on the streets of our neighborhood as well as in the culture at large, where Senator Jesse Helms famously called us degenerates, weak, morally sick wretches, and was backed up by Senate Majority Leader Trent Lott, who compared queerness to alcoholism, and Bill Clinton, who we thought maybe liked us or something, and signed, who signed the Defense of Marriage Act. I believe marriage is an institution for the, for the union of a man and a woman, he stated. For a certain segment of the queer population, the answer to such hostility was not to be respectable, to continue working to convince these bigots we were just like them, but to become the degenerate beasts they accused us of being, to take delight in our monstrous power, to say fuck you and goodbye to the possibility of living a normal life in this culture. Enter the hags. Maria Taylor is a sober 40-something queer female with beachy blonde waves who is frequently accompanied by a pack of dogs. It's like every single person I interviewed for this now makes their living from dogs in some way, <laughs> practically. Like the percentage was startlingly high. In the 1990s, she was a drunk 20-something with jet black hair and silver piercing jewelry that arced from her chin like little fangs. The abstract black tattoos that spill down her body like ink are still there. The city she inhabited is not. It was a different San Francisco, she remembers. Not a day went by that I wasn't verbally or physically bashed. I remember riding my bike as I stopped at a gas station to put air in my tires, and a carload of dudes came up. Then a second car came up, and they were there to bash on me, too. Taylor purchased a gun, choosing a semi-automatic 9mm over a 38 or 44 because it held significantly more bullets per clip, enough to take out a carload of dudes. Taylor had been in the same queer punk or orbit as the hags, thrashing around at the same clubs and performing on stage with Tribe 8 while the gang moshed in the front row. The responsibility of gun ownership spurred her to become sober, taking her out of the hags' orbit and into recovery. The people who were sober had this light in their eyes, and the hags were great, but I had this really sick feeling in my stomach, like it was the dark path. It was the time before they got super strung out. It was a gut thing. Tracy Thomas worked things out with the long-distance lover who had inspired her to fling plates out of the window. She moved to New York, starting a hags chapter in the city and attempting to control the San Francisco chapter from afar, having final approval of who, over who was allowed to have a, the hags tag on the back of their jacket. It wasn't happening. After I left, they were making everyone a hag. It turned into chaos, and everyone was on drugs. <laughs> Meanwhile, a teenage dyke on the run from the stultifying environs of Monroe, Louisiana, was hanging out in Austin, Texas with a fake ID. Kids in junior high had named her Joan for her shaggy hair and Joan Jet t-shirts. She modified it to Joan of Anarchy, her tag. When Bikini Kill played a dive bar in town, Joan showed up with her phony identification, and like Kelly before her, noticed the L7 tattoos on their roadie's legs. I was just taken aback because there were no other dykes like me. She was the first punk rock type dyke I ever met. I was really taken with her. I wished I could just go with her wherever she was. Soon enough, Joan would. She caught a ride to Seattle for a bit, then hitchhiked down to San Francisco for an anarchist fair. Homeless, she met up with other gutter punks crashing on the streets of the city and found her way to Turk Street Studios, a rehearsal space in the Tenderloin that had become infamous for the amount of debauchery taking place within its warrens. It was actually kind of a big headquarters for crystal meth. Joan fell in with a member of Tribe 8 who'd been ejected for the band, from the band for her drug use. The mu musician was shacking up with a drug-dealing hag in a practice space. When Joan pointed out that a bag of meth had slipped from the dealer's stash, she earned the hag's trust and began working as an apprentice of sorts. The guy would come over and sell us eight balls, and we'd take it and bag it for resale. I was the watchdog, I guess. I made sure people didn't rip her off. In return for her duties, Joan was permitted to crash at the practice space and gifted with free drugs. Joan's heart was outfitted with a pacemaker, making all drugs, but speed in particular, a poor choice of recreation, even for a gutter punk. But Joan was un under the illusion she had about two years to live. Back home in Mon Monroe, Louisiana, hepatitis B had broken out at the cafe she worked at. 
A blood test came up negative, so she received a vaccination. When the cafe's insurance company later requested their own blood test, the antibodies from the vaccine created a false positive. Mistakenly believed she had two years to live, Joan abandoned her college enrollment and hit the road. I was living on the street doing drugs. I wasn't worrying about it because I was like, I want to do what I want to do because I thought I was going to die tomorrow. A visit to Larkin Street, the tenderloin clinic that cares for homeless youth, eventually verified that Joan was free of hepatitis B, but by then she was living a certain life. It took Joan a minute to prove herself worthy of hagdom. They were very selective about who they led into that circle. Joan, now Johnny Ray, recalls from his comparatively sedate life in Vallejo, California. I think it was because of the strong love they had for each other. They were looking for their sisters from another mother. At a punk festival in Portland, Oregon, Joan spent the day with the hags, but come nightfall, they told her to buzz off. I didn't want to seem like it had bothered me, but I was curious. A single kindly hag stayed behind with Joan, and the pair ran around Portland doing drugs, eventually coming to rest in a dumpster. It had potato sack bags in it, like the old kind you used to play with in school. We said, fuck it, let's sleep in here. So we slept in the dumpster with potato sack bags. <laughs> Joan synced up with the gang at the festival the following day, drunk and high and skanking in a circle pit. She noticed some neo-Nazis skanking alongside her. I didn't like skinheads much, and I started beating on them in the pit. The bodyguards working the event had to separate us, and they were about to kick me out. Joan was rescued by Becky Slane, a hag who vouched for her and promised to help her cool down. Becky made a date with Joan to kick skinheads at the punk shows when they got back to San Francisco. And after that, I was a hag, I guess. It was Slane who eventually tagged Joan into the gang, painting hags on the back of her jacket. I'll just stop there. It goes along like that. I'm quite, yeah. Thank you. You guys, Maggie Nelson. <laughs> author of the red parts <laughs> as well as lots of other incredible books that I hope you all read oh boy um Wow, hi. Well, I didn't see all you people here. This is so great. I know, it's um, a little shocking, I know, it? it's awesome. And um, I just want to spend a little time telling you guys how great this book is and also saying, Michelle, that um, we've done a lot of things together over the years, but we've it's never true. done this, actually. Yeah, huh? No, we've never done this. And so I, I, when I was writing questions for Michelle today, I was like filling up. I was like four single space pages, seven single space oh pages. God. And I was like, you know what? This is totally not going to work for our 20 minutes at Skyline <laughs> <laughs> but I realized that I just, you know, I'm so uh, anxious to talk to you about so many things. And mm. um, But what I want to say about the book, as you just heard, is that um, there's... There, when Michelle's saying that you thought it would be fun to get a bunch of pieces together and that you'd already written and then go on a book tour, it's like, you know, whatever. It's like the ultimate undersell of the fact that <laughs> this book has, like, I mean, Valerie Solanas, Andy Warhol, Aaron Markey, on Chelsea Girls by Eileen Miles, Jean Loves Jezebel, Minor Threat, Sonic Youth, The Hags, um, I Had a Miscarriage, uh, Sisters Bit Feminism, so many different things, but there's this kind of amazing mix of what you just heard, which is really, really necessary great historical work even you know journalistic work of interviewing and people and representing all these things that we all need to know about that have happened um, and are so crucial um, to queer history and feminist history and otherwise but then there's also a lot of pieces that are you know really kind of I, I don't know I mean there's kind of um, is the one that's um, 
How Not to Be a Queer Douchebag, was that written as a, um, was that a college address? It was a college address. Exactly. Yeah. A keynote speech to five college yeah. queer gender and sexuality conference. Anyway, there's a lot of um, kind of more philosophical. Uh, it's trying to be helpful. Yeah, instructional and philosophical pieces. But together they make this, uh, they kind of work together to make this amazing story, which is like personal and it's journalistic and it's philosophical and it's rad. Thank through. you. Yes, it's so good. And um, so you really all need to get it. Um, and I, I have, you know, uh, the questions I had, the kind of range more philosophical, but I do, after just hearing you read that, I did, was curious. So, um, so that piece you wrote for The Believer? No. Yeah, okay. well, I wrote it, um, initially, I, I actually wrote it for, Cal I was writing it for California Sunday Magazine, okay. and I, I don't know what happened, I was like deluded, and mm -hmm. I thought that they were gonna, I thought, I thought I had a huge word count, like so much more than they have, mm -hmm. um, really? and so I wrote this huge article, and, and it took me so long to do it, because it just was a lot to work with, um, like emotionally even, um, and structurally and everything, and then when I turned it in, they were like, this is great, but whoa, we get to cut like 5,000 words out of it or something. And so like they did this huge cut on it and I w worked with them doing that. And then it ended up just being like, I felt so sensitive about the stories. Like I really want them, like you can tell that story really quickly and it sounds mm -hmm. just like it's been told quickly almost. It's like, oh, yeah. there are these queers and they got really fucked up and right. there yeah, was yeah. a tragedy, you know? Yeah. And it's like, I really wanted to get in there and see how they were funny and, and, and just talk about the context that they were happening in and stuff so mm -hmm. I ended up pulling it um, okay. from California Sunday because I just it, I just yeah. it didn't sit with me right yeah, yeah. Um, and then I just showed it to the believer because they are so great about running okay. longer pieces and um, and they liked it so and it ran there um, and how many pieces did you write for the book how many did I write separately yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean I'm that one curious. is new yeah, yeah. there's uh -huh. a there's a um, a piece about going to Poland sort okay. of weird piece about Poland there's um, a piece about I mean, a lot of the pieces are about a few things. Like, what, there's this piece that called "The City to a Young Girl," and it's about a poem that was written in the late '60s that then got banned at the high the high school in my city, mm -hmm. and then the librarian fought back, and it was this huge court case. And I found all of this out like right out, and it, and, and it gets crazier because the, one of like the villain in the story who was banning it was like. A, like he would, he was like a flasher. He, he was like this really privileged. He was like the Kennedys of Chelsea, his family, which is saying a lot because Chelsea went from is such a shithole. It's like he's the Kennedy of like the <laughs> shithole. But um, he never got in trouble for all of this. But everyone knew that he did this. And the poem that he banned was about mm -hmm. street harassment. It was written by a, like a 15 year old girl. So it's like crazy. And um, and I found the woman who wrote the poem. And this all happened like the day after the grab them by the pussy thing happened with Trump. So I was like yeah, feeling yeah. super traumatized and crazed. And yeah which is kind of something I wanted to ask you about and uh, trying to make this too long-winded, but like, so when you just said you were writing, I mean, in that piece you were saying, I'm writing from the, um, you know, with the hindsight of 2016 or something like that, mm -hmm. and obviously a lot of the things that you're writing about, um, you're kind of giving testimony to uh, an, an, an earlier age which is distinct from our own and similar in different ways. Mm -hmm. But, you know, one way that obviously, and I think that you and I share this kind of history is, you know, that we come from a real, like, you know, 
the Judas Priest song of the orgy of like the perv, perv positive, sex positive. <laughs> yeah. um, we saw things nobody can believe. Well, no, yeah, exactly. No, I, I mean, I just, I guess, I just mean that um, I think that one of my very favorite things about this book is how effortless it seems like in the book, where you, um, I mean, especially in the how not to be a queer douchebag chapter, but also in the piece on Valerie Solanas, and also in the piece Camp Trans about the Michigan Women Music Festival and the Camp Trans outside of it, but that you kind of, you know, you ride this amazing, amazing line where you where you give all this credence to this freewheeling, per-positive space, and at the and 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 are very, um, you know, uh, you know, as you'll say, like uh, you'll say. You know, God, to stop being such queer police, everybody. You know, of each other, and kind of. But you are also not. Um, uh, you know, you don't. You, you never sound reactionary. The way that people end up sounding reactionary when they're um, when they're feeling put out by the kind of um, you know by the you know the so-called excesses of the Me Too era or something. And I wonder, like, I mean, part of why you never sound reactionary is that you're always very funny, and it's always very you know, there's, and, and it's always very. There's a kind of um, seriousness and unseriousness that you bring to each one. I just wonder, like, do you ever, is that balance very easy for you to achieve? Or do you ever, like, stay up at night going, like, oh, I think I, I, I got, I, you know, like, didn't get it right or something? I think that, um, I think it's not too hard to achieve, actually, just because even though I, I mean, I believe what I believe passionately, yeah. but then yeah. I also don't take myself terribly seriously, yeah. and I know just from reading yeah. reading work that you, of what you can sound like if you're just pontificating yeah. and just pontificating yeah. and it's like i know it's like i know more or less who's reading my work and i yeah. gather that they agree with me so yeah. i don't need to just write something for the yeah. sake of just like y'all know I'm on, i think that too right like i mean that's what facebook's for right, right? like right, we do right, that already yeah. on the internet right, so right, we know right, that yeah. we're all on the same page but like on a yeah. in a book it's just more fun to layer it and yeah, yeah. um yeah i mean also because i think that you have this i mean through all of the essays the same kind of ethos comes radiating through which is as you say you know let's not pathologize our differences and there's you know and you're kind of always saying like you're not more radical you know just if you're a third gender like you're not polyamory is not better than monogamy or just kind of like these reminders of kind of like there's lots of ways to be and i feel like that you know in a way all of the the variety of your attention to all these different figures and the way you're so omnivorous and rove around them all is also that you're also paying homage to differences as opposed to, you know, trying to find the the one great way to be, you know. Yeah. Oh, I think the one thing that happens in, in queer culture is that one thing that I've seen ha happen is that it's like whatever is the most kind of radical stance becomes the thing and then everyone who deviates from that is like a, it's basically you're just like yeah. a square really right. but yeah. then again it it's like a politicized square you know right, right, so right, then right. there's like this polit so it's like it's like you're basically just being like I don't think you're cool but there's like a political mantle on it that feels right. very righteous and uh, stuff but yeah, it yeah. just feels like a lot of high school stuff I mean yeah. basically you just I just feel like ideally we're all fighting for a world where everyone could be whatever the fuck they want it's none yeah. of anybody else's business is yeah. the point yeah. right but we're dealing with this system that does um it might not be, you know, more radical to be, you know, a third gender, but it's definitely more difficult in our culture and it's more punished in our culture. So that's a problem, right? So it's kind of like, how do we, how do we hold all of that? Like, how do we give attention to the people who are the most punished and the most vulnerable and often the most visible in their difference mm -hmm. without making everybody else acting like everybody else is just like an asshole or something because they got married. Yeah, I mean, the camp, the camp trans piece is so great like that because you also, you know, you let everybody... 
you let everybody say, I mean, there's this great journalist part of you where you let everybody just say their due. So you let, like, you don't have to say what you need to say because you let everybody else say all these different extreme positions. Like, there's this one great moment where, like, people from the Women's Music Festival come over and, like, give out leaflets kind of saying, like, we want to tell you how we feel. And then you're at the meeting where, like, all the camp trans people are, like, debating how, well, you can explain it, but how awful the leaflet is. And you're just letting them say, you're letting the leaflet say everything and then you let them say everything in response. And it was super, so much more fun for me as a writer to do that. You know, and it's just like, I don't know, there's something about like, right, when you're writing about the culture that you actually are part of, for me, it can be, it can feel awkward to be like, you know, Michelle reporting here, you know, from Tip in the Heart of Camp Trans, you know, let me tell you, you know, I just like, I feel like this is like, I'm, I'm here too. And so it's, it's better just to let, write down what everyone said and like, instead of having me paraphrase it, I did have a press pass. I had a little pass at Camp Trans. It was a little sticker. It said press. And then this person came up to me and and just pressed it (laughs) and just looked at me. And I was like, I didn't get it. And then they were like, I just wanted to see what would happen. And I was like, oh, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. I had to make sure everyone knew that, you know, I was transparent, you know? And, um, so, so yeah. And also I, you know, I'm really aware of the people that I'm talking to are people that have, have been paraphrased badly and they've been spoken for. And it seemed to me just a lot more important to, just have exactly what they're saying, you know, because they're saying it better. Like, I'm paraphrasing. If I paraphrase it, it's not going to be as powerful as the words coming right out of a person's mouth. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you said a minute ago that you know who you're writing for, you know? Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious, like, I mean, I think something that I am so grateful for in your writing is that, um, you know, you're willing to write about... hard parts or messy parts about queer relations um, many kinds of social relations or romantic or sexual relations that like in a way that I think sometimes people suppress because they don't want to say anything that mm-hmm. could reflect poorly on the community in some way or yeah. whatever. And, but you kind of write into those spots and I feel like um, it's a great you know, I, I won't name names, but I was reading uh, Straight Feminist the other day who was saying, like, uh, oh, I love, you know, we have so much to learn from marriage equality because, you know, same-sex marriages are so equal. And I was just kind of like, <laughs> I was just like, you know, just like, I mean, I feel like there's this kind of, uh, I, and, but then that can be like a line that people want to be like, oh, we have so much to teach you from our queer subculture about how to be, which is like true on the one hand, deeply so. But mm-hmm. then on the other hand, you know, I feel like that, you know, you also are kind of an excavator of, of damage and how damage from a culture that damages queers can reproduce damage in different places and you're not afraid to um, excavate that damage and Mm -hmm. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that Um, yeah I guess so there are some definitely some pieces in there I mean I you know writing honestly from my own experience which is what even the a lot of the book still is that even though I am you know doing journalism and stuff Um, yeah you know looking back not even that long ago. It's like, if you're in a relationship with other queer people, I mean, I'm 47, and so I, I have no doubt it's getting better or it's just differently traumatic. Um, but, you know, in the 90s, when I was in my 20s, everyone was so traumatized, you know? And if you're a femme and you're attracted to people who, you know, are, like, you know, gender, like, their gender is not, like, you know, their gender ambiguous or they're not, their gender is not normative. It's like, they're so traumatized and so you're kind of 
a therapist. Like you're kind of in over your head in a lot of ways, just in your relationship, because, you know, and especially if you are a female or a femme and you are raised certain ways, like you just, I don't know if it's like instinctive on some levels and it's certainly cultural conditioning on other levels, but, and then you just want to care for the people that you love and then who you're, you end up taking care of people who are like really need more help than they can get from their 23-year-old girlfriend who's <laughs> on the run from her estranged family and prostitute. Yeah, so I, I, I'm sure I speak to that. Here, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> I tried, yeah. I really tried. Yeah, I mean, that is also something else that I think is so... Um, you know, inspiring to me is is your writing throughout this book about um, you know not not like f- feminist or femininity like per se, but your willingness to call out as you say like in the fight to destroy sexism we turn on femininity and how this kind of keeps going on and on even in queer circles and even in you know whatever even in 2018 as if 2018 doesn't look like a Neanderthal moment but um, <laughs> uh, but I think that you know I love the part I can't remember the name I can't remember what essay it's in but I love the part where you talk about how you know we still think like oh you know if we if we name you know the child Madison and keep them in overalls forever whatever like that that is better than letting them wear tutus and like you know whatever yeah like, and, like, and you know and like letting you know, people like play with dolls or babe princess because that means they're brainwashed. Whereas, as you say, I just have to read your quote because it's so great. Where you say, um, you know, that no one is asking a bunch of, you know, checking in with boys to make sure they really want to be wearing corduroys and throwing a ball around. And I just think that that space that you hold open is really fantastic. And, you know. Yeah. Well, there's this idea that like femininity is like an apparition yeah. or something. You know, and it's just it's just misogyny. You yeah. know, it's just another form of it. I see it all the time because I mean, and you're a parent, so you probably do. So like, there's so many parents who are freak they freak feminist like progressive parents who freak out because their daughter is like into princess stuff and I'm just like who fucking cares like really like it's so fun I'm still into princess stuff look (laughs) at my earrings like never stops like it's just it's valid and so it's like this idea that somehow we're like I'm like oh so are we all fighting together to eradicate femininity from the planet is that like the end game because I never signed up for that ever you know Um, so yeah yeah it does seem to be an end game, but one that's kind of, um, yeah, like uh, kind of an unconscious or conscious end game. Yeah, but I think it can be really unconscious and. Yeah. Or it's like yeah. if they're, if, or if like your son's wearing a tutu, that's awesome, you know. Right, so exactly, it's just like you right, can't yeah, have yeah. it both ways, you guys. You can't right. just flip it. So now, yeah. like, yeah, you know, yeah, go from like you know boys aren't allowed to wear tutus to like girls aren't allowed to wear tutus. That's a right. better. It's a better way. Right. You know, it's just like fucking wear a tutu or don't like so stupid <laughs> although you do say in your book that you, you metaphor or rhetorically speaking you're moving towards a world in which we all wear tutus yeah, yeah right exactly yeah. Yeah. it's true okay i have an agenda too fine no no Exposed. no it's, it's, it's rhetorically Exposed. no rhetorically speaking <laughs> um i mean speaking of you know the parent thing i just you know i i feel like so what years were you writing the getting pregnant with michelle t blog for jane oh, gosh i guess i started writing it in like a 2011 i think okay yeah because um, I was trying to remember just that I think that I, I I had a kid born in 2012, so I think it was not quite like totally commensurate, but I also felt like, so it wasn't like, 
but I feel like I felt, um, you know, all along in reading that blog and then in the writing that you're doing in here, you know, I felt just infinitely buoyed and infinitely accompanied by you in this adventure of, um, you know, not just of having a child or bearing a child and or child rearing or making queer family or whatever, but also I think more explicitly in, in, in writing about it and like mm. being in public about it. Um, not like being in public about it, like it's, there's an it there, but I think that what I'm trying to get to is that, um, is that I, in my own, you know, different way than the Jane Magazine adventure, and we've talked about this before, have just, you know, kind of regrettably noted over and over again this kind of Mack truck of bullshit about, um, you know, like, it's, it's like there's some big secret that, like, writing about all this stuff is supposed to be shame, like, you're shameful or, like, doing something terrible to your child in a way that you is, like, their main protector. It's like, if you don't know what you've done, then you just are blind and negligent and, like, you know, like people, like, interview after interview kind of, like, do you feel okay about what you've done? And you're, like, what have I done? And then they're, like, you don't know what you've done. It just kind of, like, goes on and on in this weird train. And I just feel like, I just keep thinking, I wish Michelle were with me here. Like, or I try and, like, you know, summon up the ghost of you beside me. And I guess I just feel like there's so much that's so boring in that way to talk about. And is there anything interesting that has come up for you in doing the Jane blog or in publishing these essays? is writing about parenthood um gosh I just don't th I think that those terrible people who talk to you just haven't really talked to me that much I just was like talking to like other like ladies on Jane or something right, yeah, yeah. like the best yeah. thing about that doing that column besides the fact that it gave me some place to put all of this shit that was happening every single week around trying to get pregnant and how nuts it is um, was that the, the comments were so sweet. So like what's the grossest thing in the world? Internet comments. Like you right. never read your internet comments. They're right. always abusive and right. awful and these right. ones were beautiful yeah. and like every now and then like the worst one would be like I can't read this shit all she does is write about astrology. Right. Like some <laughs> bitch got pissed that I was just like writing about astrology. Right. It's right. not real. Right. You yeah. know? Yeah. Right. Right. But otherwise people it just was like it was right. so kind and I was just yeah. like oh my god like I felt yeah. like I suddenly like I had um, manifested this community for myself yeah. that I didn't realize I needed yeah. so much even yeah, though it was like yeah. virtual and it was strangers it yeah, was yeah. still to feel yeah. like it, yeah it was it was so it was so tender that people that I d still don't even know were truly like fucking hoping that I got pregnant yeah you yeah. know yeah who cares if anyone yeah. gets pregnant you know it was like yeah, really yeah. nice That's and so nice. Yeah. yeah and then um when I entered my third trimester I was so busted I just kind of dropped the column mm -hmm. I just was like oh, I can't do it for $50 a week or whatever they were giving me I'm just like I can't you know and um, I think I talked them up to 75 <laughs> negotiating um, and then um, and then I and then I had the baby and everything and I realized oh my god like they, people think I died or something maybe they probably think something horrible happened like I took them all the way up to the end and so right. then I had to go back and be like I'm okay everybody yeah, I had yeah. a baby yeah. <laughs> you're back yeah <laughs> I mean, one of my favorite things in the, it's in the title essay, which is called Against Memoir, and um, you you're talk about lying in bed with your son at night, putting him to sleep and all the kind of pleasures, but also despairs and weird agonies that, that come in that moment, and I feel like that, that time, which to me is, um, I just 
felt kind of ferocious relating to this idea of this time that's supposed to be this kind of, I don't know, just this kind of like this delicious sleeping angel next to you curled up and you're like, this is the, this is so great. And then you're, as you say, you know, suddenly you realize there's no God or you imagine all the catastrophic things that might be about to happen or, or like, you know, that you feel convinced you have to wake up and sage the room because something, the feng shui is so bad that something terrible, is, whatever. I just feel like, but that, I don't know. I mean, to me, that was, you know, as you wrote, you said, you know, you're putting your son to sleep at night and on the one hand, you're sending love out to everyone in the world and you're also thinking everything fun about life seems gone. I cry myself to sleep. I just wonder, this is a state that I deeply relate to. And I is it never, mental illness? I don't know. But, but I only, but to me, it really recurs in the hour or so of like lying down with putting a kid to bed at night. And uh-huh. I just, I don't know. I've never, but I'd never heard it written about. So I just wondered if you had any more insights into that. God, no, I just feel like it's mind. my mental illness. Like I need to get my meds right or something. Right. Well, I don't know. You know, laying in bed without sleeping is what it bad is, right? for most people, yeah. right? Yeah. Who don't, you right. just yeah, lay yeah. in bed to have sex or go to bed or go right. to sleep. Right. 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 You don't yeah. just lay there. Yeah. You know, like two hours with somebody kicking. Yeah. yeah. And right. you're trying yeah. to stay awake so you can get right. up and watch Netflix and not fall asleep. <laughs> and then you're just kind of like your mind is spinning to keep you awake and then it just gets real dark real quick. Right. Yeah. 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 Totally. Yeah. That's super interesting. Yeah. Um, all right. What else do I want to ask you? Maybe I'll ask you one more question, um, and then we'll ask other people. Um, this is a question I'm worried is going to be kind of like, well, hmm. do you want to talk about power, perviness, or alcoholism? <laughs> God, I, I always want to talk about alcoholism, but okay, I like all of that stuff. Let's do that. I like all of that We'll put the power, the power and the perviness thing. The pervy were, power no, of alcoholism. Yeah. The, the other ones were getting into weird territory. Okay, the alcoholism went so... Now we're all going to be sad that we don't know the, what that question is. Yeah, that's no, all right. You're uh, more sad I'll, than me, though, because I have to answer like it. A bridal okay. Bouquet. okay. Um, <laughs> the, uh, so... I did this event the other day with brilliant Tara Jebson here in this great book, Like a Dog, and which was also published by the press that, imprint that you run. Yay, Tara, yeah. And, uh, and, um, and that was an event with Patty Shemmel from Hole um, who, with a memoir hit, hit so hard about um, addiction amongst other things. And Tara's book also had um, uh, to do with addiction. And then just about, I think just two weeks or three weeks ago, I was sitting on this self-same stool with Leslie Jameson here talking oh my about gosh. her book called The Recovering. Um, and it was really, I just think it's been really interesting where I'm kind of, I've been thinking like, wow, it's really golden age for women writing about addiction. <laughs> it's a golden age of women alcoholics. Yes, exactly. Really, Coming into um, our own. Yeah, but it's, but it's, but I just, you know, I've been really, you know, I mean, it's kind of a pet subject of mine. So I'm mm-hmm. just interested. I mean, we've talked about before about, you know, we've talked about the anonymity thing and people being like, and then we've talked about different, like, kind of new, um, uh, you know, with, with Leslie's book, where other people being kind of like, you know, this is a whole, we don't do this. It's like, you know, like all this. I, I just thought it was interesting about like both the, whatever you think about the golden age or not golden age, but also the, um, and then maybe about women and then also maybe about anonymity. So, yeah. mm-hmm. um, gosh. Yeah. I, I was, I was doing an interview actually with somebody who'd written this whole book like an interview like this, like we're doing, um, about, you know, his alcoholism and stuff. And I asked him like, you know, how, how did you get around writing about AA? And he looked at me horrified and he said, I never mentioned the word AA in my book. And he did it. He said 12 steps. And I was like, Oh my God. So that's what we're doing. Like 12 steps, you know, not AA. Sorry. I really fucked up. Like, (laughs) it's like, I don't know. Like, here's my thing. And I know it's my thing. And I know that a case could be made for me just being a willful alcoholic by having a thing right. <laughs> at all. But my thing is that when I was 
drinking, as I did for so long, so successfully, and wrote books about it. And I would write, like I wrote my book Valencia, it's basically like, and then we did Crystal, and then we did Speed, and then we did Ecstasy, and then we drank, you know, and it's like, that's what the whole book is. And then to get sober, and then to not talk about 12-step, like I just magically got sober. It's cool. Like I have people who email me or message me who are trying to get sober and it's like and I know like when you talk one on one like that it's fine but it also just felt it always felt really weird and gross to me to be like oh I went from like living like that to this just like I just put it all down and walked like I you know it's like I but I guess if I say 12 step it's okay but then that's like so weird right because I was like we've just all agreed to do some weird euphemistic lie like to be dainty or something I don't know so I'm really out about being in a 12 step program Uh for alcoholics Um, (laughs) because like for me there's no way I would have been able to stop drinking without it and to me that's really important and like if people when people do ask me Mm -hmm. I'm just like listen like I know mm-hmm. it's fucking weird. Mm-hmm. It gets less weird the longer you're in it because mm-hmm. you get brainwashed mm-hmm. and it works. And then like you're, and then you have this awesome life mm-hmm. and you're not fucking yeah. strung out drunk yeah. anymore. Yeah. You know, or you always are on the inside, yeah. of course, but yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. So it's yeah. like, I, you know, I just have to tell people that because that's right. what I've seen to be true. And yeah, you know, and I, could write a whole book about that, but Leslie yeah, Jameson yeah. already has. So. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. But also, you don't need to write a book about that because, I mean, I mean, you get the gift of, like, all your writing when you were drunk was fucking awesome. <laughs> and then all, but then, I mean, I do have to say that Black Wave and this book and other things you've written recently are, you know, I think some of your best books ever. So you're, Thank like, you. living the dream, but not just, like, you know, talking about it. So anyway, but you guys ask questions of Michelle. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> Here I am. We'll never all be in the same place again like this, probably. It'd be weird if we were. We would never know it. Yes? Um, Okay, well, first of all, Michelle, thank you for everything that you've done. You're welcome. um, Do you mean Aquarians? Yeah, exactly. Contextualizing, you know, what I didn't understand was going on at the time, um, and uh, you know, I came up in that same place, and my observation was a little bit di- was different. But um, it's 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 like uh, you know, to be that va- you know I don't know maybe use the word validated as a queer person and the history validation like that is so important, and I I don't think I really realized that. Recently, when I have all these peers that are, you know, documenting this stuff, and um, anyway, I just wanted to thank you for that because it's just, it's, it's really crazy how, you know, the thing about like who gets to write history, like who gets to do that, and we all know historically who gets to do that, mm-hmm. and it's just great that you. Anyway, blah blah blah. That thank you. You're welcome. And thank my you. My question is um, that at the time. When you were writing, you know, like in the '90s, um, how much of your observational stuff was like going into a catalog in your mind about, like, your process around, like, witnessing, and then because your work is even the fictional stuff to me feels like 
Um, like, like, was I cataloging stuff? Like, did I keep a journal and stuff like yeah. that? Or, man, just luck, especially because I, I don't know. I, um, this is like going to sound really cheesy, but when I was little, I read an interview with Judy Bloom in a kids' magazine where like kids got to interview Judy Bloom and they were like, Judy Bloom, how do you remember? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but less Christian. <laughs> They're like, how do you rem how do you write so good about kids our age when you're an old lady? You know, and she's just like, I just really paid attention to everything when I was young, and I just was like, oh, she because she knew she wanted to be a writer from when she was young, and I did too, and I was like, okay, I gotta pay attention to everything, you know. <laughs> so I just really have always sort of, um, from a very young age, looked outward at my life as if I was watching a story unfold. So I think that because of that, I register a lot. Like I'm narrating in my head all the time, you know? I don't know. I mean, I feel like I've lost a lot because of like the, the brain cells of yore, but the brain's also plastic. Mm -hmm. I don't know if we lose the new the memories we've lost. I don't know. But yeah, I don't know. That's not helpful, sorry. No, that's yeah. very Okay. Yeah, it makes sense. You're a trap. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Hi. Hello. Um, Hello, sir. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk to you about um, your relationship, sort of like you made this imprint with Feminist Press. You made an imprint with, sister, sister, with City, City Lights, Lights, yeah. And just sort of um, explaining that, I mean, you're personally responsible for all of my books being published. <laughs> you are. And, um, like, so just sort of, like, describing your sort of relationship moving forward, convincing, because without, I was thinking as I read that Hags article that this is so important, and you're, as you go further on, the description of class and mental illness and alcoholism and queerness, like, if you didn't write that essay, it wouldn't be, it, it, it would be something very, very different, yeah. you know? And, um, like, convincing um, these presses to put out these books by people that are in our community, you know, who might not get that. So, can you talk a little bit? Yeah. Um, I mean, I've been pretty lucky in that, well, I started, I started doing a Sister Spit imprint on City Lights, um, and that was cool, but then they didn't want to publish Black Wave, so I was like, this is awkward, I guess <laughs> I'll stop doing it. Um, not to talk trash, I love City Lights, but just as weird to like not be able to publish your own book on your imprint. So I am, so Feminist Press wanted to publish it, and so then I was like, oh, hey, can I do an imprint also? And they were like, sure. Because I think that publishers are looking, I mean, these are small, cool, smart presses, right? I mean, like, like so it hasn't really been hard. Like, they have been receptive to what I've given them for the most part, you know? Like, sometimes they will have, like, an issue, like, with publishing poetry because it's not their, they don't know how to do it, you know? But as far as, like, the voices and the people, like, it's all been really good matches. I mean, I actually got feedback from the editor I work with recently that a book that I... That we, and we are going to do it, but she was worried that it was like kind of like too, um, like it reads like the kind of book that would actually be a bestseller. And she was worried that it was like too much of a bestseller, kind of, you know. So I'm really lucky that I, I was like, exactly, let's have a bestseller. You know, it's like a weird, it's a weird bestseller, but it has that polished kind of tone to it. But um, I think I'm just really lucky that I hooked up with these people who have the same sensibilities and they value 
the community that I'm a part of and they know that I am actually connected to like a bazillion writers from doing Sister Spit for so long or doing Radar for so long and so they know that I can actually bring them writers that are doing cool stuff. So it's in, been in case cool. anyone was dying to wonder what I was going to ask about power, I just want to say one, I want to interject one thing, which is just kind of a, another Michelle, you know, pl- worshiping slash plug, but which is just to say that, um, you know, one of my pet peeves in the recent weeks or months have been hearing a lot about like male writers who are like, people say like they're so powerful, they're suffused with power, this powerful male writer who did X, Y, or Z, like who was like acted like a gatekeeper to the, the world or whatever. And I just, I guess, and I, kept, I keep trying to analyze why I'm so peeved reading these articles. And I think, you know, part of it is that I just feel like, you know, from Eileen Miles, who was really important to both Michelle and me, kind of like from two different coasts that we kind of like, you know, met like this in some kind of triangle. But like, you know, Eileen would always talk about, you know, affidamento, which is this Italian feminist concept of women helping other women get what they want. And like, there is a whole world of, and Michelle is a huge, like, she doesn't call herself a gatekeeper. She's just a person who, as she just described with Ellie, like, no, she really makes things happen and it's do it yourself and it's putting your thing into the world and it's making, it's making the world and not begging the world to, uh, you know, the world, the fucked up world as it is to have you be part of it. And it's totally powerful and it's totally invisible. People, when they talk about this gatekeeping culture, and it's not that that doesn't exist, but people like Michelle T. Shred it. So you should just keep that in mind. So, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, you guys. <laughs> I just come out of zine culture do you know what I mean like the first writing I did was like for zines and so I don't know like you just can really I was like oh I can publish my own things because I knew I was a writer from when I was very young but I didn't understand how anyone would get published and I never thought I would get published and for a while I was like that's fine I'll just publish my own stuff and that was truly enough to keep me writing so yeah yeah all right cool maybe a couple more oh hello sister it's my sister uh, real sister. My real sister. She's right here. Uh, just as you guys started talking about this, I was remember. I was thinking, like, well, what do you, what do you do if you're a writer? And I would imagine that so many people who are writers write because they're not, because that's their best way to communicate. Whereas, like, you're a person who is super outgoing and is really able to squash your social anxiety and like show up to have a conversation in public where it's like I would imagine that many writers would be like it's their dream but also like their worst nightmare so how do how do like writers who come to these things and are like dreaming of having a book published someday or connecting to the community like what how do they how would a person go about doing that if they didn't have the balls or Xanax to make it happen. <laughs> I know, it's hard. It's hard enough to be a writer and have a writer's like psyche and to actually write a book, which is so tremendously, like it's an endurance performance art piece that only you will ever see. Like, and then to then on top of that be expected to be like social and network. Yeah, it's a lot of people's nightmare. Yeah, you know, it's true. Um, get over it? I don't know. Like Morrissey said, shyness is nice, but shyness can stop you from doing all the things in life you'd like to, you know? Like, I, it's hard for me to speak to that because I, it's true that I don't have that. Like, I'm super, I mean, I do have social anxiety, but um, in my younger years, I drank through it quite effectively. And now, um, I'm sober, and I've just have, I've created this very social 
life for myself that I just have to figure out how to show up for, you know? Um, and sometimes it is really hard and, um, and sometimes I feel really shaky on the inside, but I have to like fake it, you know? And I know like everyone has their different, like the mental, emotional, psychological skill sets of what they're able to do or not. But in general, I always tell writers like the more outgoing that you can be putting your work forward, it's just going to help you. And it's not fair that you have to do it, but it's just what, it's just what reality is. Like try to be a part of a literary community, go to open readings, try to read some of your stuff out loud. It gets easier. You get to hear what your work sounds like being read. Maybe you'll, I mean, a lot of things are terrible and wonderful at the same time, or maybe just for me, because I confuse excitement and anxiety. But like, so it can be really awful to give a reading and re really exhilarating at the same time. It's like really a unique experience and you meet people. And you know, if you do want to be published, like the way that I got my second book published was like, well, I mean, doing Sister Spit, and be, I didn't, um, there was no reason anyone should have known about me. I never published a book, but because I was doing these tours and doing all these readings in different places, people did know my, about my writing. So I had a little bit of an up with a publisher. And so these kind of things, they are important. And I know it's like, you know, easy, it's hard if it doesn't come easy to you if you're an introvert. Yeah, some people are introverts. Um, so... <laughs> It's just hard. I don't know. There's like no easy way around it. Life is hard, you guys. <laughs> Newsflash. <laughs> Newsflash. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Glad everybody knows this. Glad this is all coming out tonight. But I was thinking a lot, like, I think around some of the questions that you asked when you were maybe I mean, I just hope that there are queer creators behind the wheel, you know? I mean, I think that this is all potentially wonderful as long, again, it's like as long as it's queer people, the, the people being represented are telling their own stories, you know, or they're telling the stories of their community that they have a true, a, a true connection with and a true affinity for and recognize, you know, what is possibly at stake, you know? I don't know. I mean... Yeah, we just have to all be the kind of creators of our of our works. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, it's hard. I mean, if you're talking about, like, media, like TV and film and stuff like that, it's like there are so many people sticking their fingers in the pie that things can get kind of, like, messed with. So I guess you just have to figure out what your sticking points are, you know? Um like it absolutely has to be X, Y, and Z, and if that gets fucked with, then the story, the soul of the story is gone. So I, I think maybe just really figuring out, like it's hard when you're dealing with those mediums because things are going to get shifted around, and you can't just take like a book and neatly drop it into a screenplay. Like you're going to have to change it. So it's like what's okay with being changed, and like what actually would make it so. Like why did you even bother? Because it's not even the soul of the of the material. So yeah, figuring out like what are the three three things that are just like not. You can't change it. Does that make sense? Okay. You want to do one more, Michelle? Sure. Okay. Say one more. 
I used to do a reading series in San Francisco where I brought cookies. And if you asked a question, you got a cookie, so we never had to sit in awkwardness like this because somebody always wants a cookie. <laughs> yes. I love your about stand-up, and I know you've been doing stand-up, and I love that, and I just was wondering if you could kind of talk about the... You want to tell a joke? No. <laughs> Um, I, yeah, I've only been doing, I've been doing stand-up for so briefly that I can barely even say I'm doing stand-up. Allie Liebegott dragged me into it. It's all her fault. And now we do a, we do an open mic called Clown Town. We're having our grand reopening. It's a no-bro open mic. If you're a bro, don't come. Um, and it's going to be at the Virgil on uh, June 17th. And then I do another stand-up thing with Tara Jefferson. It's called Josh, where we like pull a bunch of comedians into the, someone's private home. Someone's like, just come to our, my house. And we just go with like LaCroix and beer and com comedians and we do a show. Um, and I don't know, I feel like it's a little bit of a different part. It's, it's a p different part of my brain, I think, a little bit. Um, certainly, it's connected, but it's kind of like, it, I'm a writer, but I've also done a lot of like talking into microphones a lot, because I've hosted shows and stuff like that. And it feels a more, more akin to that, like being able to be comfortable getting up on a microphone and talking, t telling a funny story or talking about my life or something that I've thought of. So it's, it's different than writing. It's similar, but different. It's kind of more like blogging also, where it's just sort of like, bleh, like just like <laughs> barfing whatever happened without thinking about being literary. The feedback of the, I know, right? It's like, so you're, the stakes are so desperate with stand-up, right? You are absolutely trying to make people laugh immediately. It's so horrible. Like, and you know if you don't, if like somebody hates your book, you're not there when they just go like, oh, this is a shit sandwich and throw it across the room. Like, you never have to see that, but you have to see nobody laughing at you. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't mean, I, I've never bombed, so I really don't know. I can't really speak to it. <laughs> No, I'm kidding. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's like sometimes you're, I don't know. I just feel like giving yourself permission to fail, basically, and then if it doesn't work, it's okay. Or it's like your, your self-esteem isn't riding on whether, like, that dude at, at, like, flappers thinks you're funny or not, you know? Or even that, like, cool queer weirdo night, you know? You just don't want to, like, have it be, you know, like, it's, it's okay if you fuck up. It's okay if you, your book is bad. It's okay. Like, it's all okay, you know? Yeah. It's all okay. It's all okay. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you. Maggie Nelson, brilliant genius Maggie Nelson. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.